Welcome to the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. Today is October 5th. It's no longer September, like my mind likes to tell me it is. It's October 5th, and we're broadcasting to you live from the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, on the unceded and stolen Musqueam land. My name is Ruby Raven. I'm your host today, and I am joined by a new Arts Report correspondent, Zoe Hi. Hi, Zoe. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm glad the, to be here. This is your first time on the radio, right? It is, yeah. Oh, beautiful. Well, it's going to be a fun day, a fun hour. Um, so we are jam-packed with more VIF stuff. You've been going to VIF, right? I have. What films have you seen so far? So the only one I've seen is Soft. I'm hoping to see another one maybe this weekend, but that's the one I went to. And what did you think of it? I thought it was so good. The cinematography was amazing. Um, they had two of the filmmakers and the actor there to do a Q&A, which was so cool to see. Oh, really? Yeah. That's amazing. Right? It was so cool. Is there anything memorable uh, that that the, that you heard in the Q&A that you wanted to share? Um, anything memorable? Well, the one thing that sticks out to me was in the specific film Soft, they had child actors. So mm-hmm. by the time that the film was made and released and they did the Q&A, their voices had dropped, which was <laughs> really, really funny. <laughs> Um, uh, the main thing that I remember was specifically in the film they had mentioned, they had mentioned some of the methods that they used in making the film. Mm -hmm. So something that really stuck out to me was them using, um, scenes where people weren't acting and were just having conversation and just getting like the real dynamic of the people um oh that's really interesting which was really cool that's fun thinking back can you recognize those scenes or was it so seamless that you can't even um honestly it was really seamless if I really think about it I think the opening scene scene was really it seemed really authentic so I'd say that one oh I love that that's awesome all right so we're gonna get into it pretty quickly because um we have some interviews to share so um first up what we have is an interview with Dean Fleischer Camp, director writer of Marcel the Shell, Marcel the Shell with shoes on. I was so excited to talk to him. He was so kind, so lovely, and gave me so much of his time, like way more than was planned. So that was really cool. Um, and then you'll hear my interview. It's a it's a it's a ruby day today. Um, then you'll hear my interview with Marie Clemens. So uh, I have been raving about her film Bones of Crows on. Uh, the arts report for the past few weeks since I went to the press screening a couple weeks ago. So I was so honored to speak with her and uh, she did not disappoint. She's She was able to speak so well about the art that she made and that was really exciting. Um, but before that, I'm going to give a little shout out to Sick of Myself, which is the film that CITR has partnered with. Uh, it's a drama comedy directed by Christopher Borgli, uh, and it's a Norwegian film. Singe and Thomas are in an unhealthy competitive relationship that takes a vicious turn when Thomas suddenly breaks through as a contemporary artist. In response, Singe makes a desperate attempt to regain her status by creating a new persona, hell-bent on attracting attention and sympathy. So I'm going to this film tonight with a ton of CITR people. I'm really excited. Um, It's playing tonight at 9.30pm at the Rio Theatre and Sunday at 9.15 at the VIF Center. So if you're interested in seeing this film, uh, we were, CITR was really excited to partner with it because it's a drama comedy and sort of a psychological thriller so we're really excited um to see it tonight uh all right but let's jump into the dean fleischer camp interview um when when i first popped on zoom his uh, assistant came on and so i ended up speaking with his assistant for like seven minutes before he even got there and his assistant was really interesting so you'll hear a tail end of my conversation with the assistant um before you hear and then Dean comes in right away, but there's sort of some some stuff happening with the assistant, so you'll hear two voices, and then eventually after about two or three minutes, it's just me and Dean. But the, the conversation with the assistant was so interesting, I, I wanted to keep a little bit of it in. All right, let's let's get let's get to it. Let's get to it. Here we go. Dean Fleischer Camp interview. Let's do it. But what's the nerd thing? Hi, hi. To, oh, sorry, go ahead. To be continued. <laughs> what's the nerd continued. thing? Uh <laughs> Well, we're ready to nerd out about uh, Marcel and uh, <laughs> anything to be discussed. I was just talking to Sam about when he first moved to L.A. I was asking him if he did any, like, film comedy nerd things. 
Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was telling me about um, just the thesis that he wrote, but you're leaving me on a cliffhanger. What was the nerd thing? <laughs> I'm going to grab something. You can go, go ahead. ahead. Um, well, I was going down a different path. Uh, a, a shorter nerd thing is uh, I was really curious to find if you've seen the movie Drive, there is a section oh, yeah. where uh, Ryan Gosling uh, decides to take um, it was, uh, Michelle Williams, I think. Uh, yeah into the LA river and comes across like a jungle in the middle of the LA river, um, which I thought was kind of preposterous. And so <laughs> when I first came to LA, uh, while I was still in college, I sought that out and I found the spot and it's it real? exists. It's real. Um, oh my God. they happen to shoot so around the, 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 like, you know, overturned shopping cart and yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, all yeah, right. the trash around there and made it look much more beautiful. But, uh, <laughs> But you it, were so it, it really bothered exists. by this preposterous scene <laughs> yeah. that the first thing you did when you came to LA was seek out this river. That's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Really that is the right hole thing. In the I got my nerd and... thing. Thank you. What, yeah. One of the first things I did when I moved to New York when I for college was sought out the apartment where like the final shootout in Taxi Driver takes place. <laughs> <laughs> that is very <laughs> fair. I'm I'm sure and, you weren't the first. Yeah, yeah, totally. I know. I found it. And I was like, I bet there's like a couple weirdos a year that come to look for this place. And probably the people that live there are like, what is that guy doing? <laughs> That's how you know you're like a real cinephile is if you're like creeping That's out the right. neighbors. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, are you a, are you a comedy uh, film dork yourself, Ruby? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, I'm like, sketch improv comedy nerd person so that's what I was cool. interested in in asking Sam about yeah and that's why I'm so interested in you and Marcel <laughs> great segue yeah um, nice really professional <laughs> thank you so much um all right so on October 7th between 1 and 2 p.m you'll be joining the VIF Connect talk um so you're joining VIF to talk about your hit film Marcel the Shell with Shoes On which I saw over the summer and I really loved um, you know, for a variety of reasons, I'm a huge Jenny Slate fan. Now I'm a huge you fan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really loved that Marcel was never the butt of the joke that like you took his emotional world really, really seriously. And you like dealt with it with a lot of respect, but also the premise of him being this shell that talks and wears shoes is like preposterous. Um, so, uh, that's where like the comedy comes in. So, but, but I love just how heartfelt it was and how serious the audience was allowed to take his story, even though it was a ridiculous story. Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I always like what I always loved about the shorts and what I was really trying to maintain with the, the feature was like that contrast because something that. I, I mean, I always thought Marcel's uh, a real living individual and I didn't want our, I don't even like the term mockumentary because I think it, it implies that you're mocking the subject or mocking documentaries. And um, I had never really seen a movie where it's a mockumentary, but, but the subject is treated with just as much dignity as like, you know, Grey Gardens or any, any real documentary subject. Also, Grey Gardens is constantly being made fun of. So I love that that was the <laughs> example that you used. But, but no, that's such a great word because that's how I felt about Marcel, that he had such dignity. So that, that's yeah. a perfect word. Um, and a lot of what you write is what I would describe as perhaps off kilter. I really love Catherine. Um, <laughs> um, so I'm wondering that, if, when you were a young writer, were you like, I want to write like the most unique thing no one's ever seen before? Or were your first ideas always like very weird and different? Wow, what a good question. I don't, I guess I don't see them as weird. <laughs> I think <it's laughs> maybe the issue. Um, I, no, I mean, I think we're all, whatever your work is, is sort of a, um, it's a document of your enthusiasms at that moment or your reaction to like, you know, whatever's going on in the zeitgeist or stuff you've been watching or stuff friends are making. And I know that Catherine, for example, was, um, was a reaction that, that Jenny and I had to sort of like, at the time it was like, uh, there is like 
such a boom in online content and people are constantly asking us to like make video asking me to direct a video we'll give you like two grand can you make us like 30 shorts and it just felt like oh no and also i'm like <laughs> that level of output is so straining and um and i'm sick of being clever or whatever and so <laughs> and so jenny and i sort of started this silly experiment that made us laugh about like oh could we have a conversation that's just completely neutral and sincere and then the the uh the tone of Catherine was like born first and then we started making it this like office dramedy or whatever but um but yeah it came from feeling like there was nothing sincere out in the world and there was nothing kind of neutral out in the world and everything's clever and sarcastic and cynical and how do we make something that's like perfectly neutral so that's almost the op like the, I, I love that <laughs> because when I'm watching it I'm like looking for meaning somewhere I'm like what is this and like what does this music mean or the mm -hmm. ending it was all about their friendship like yeah. I'm looking so hard for some sort of like larger meaningful yeah I think it's intended I think it's intended to like the the thing I was um trying to do that I think is successful at times is to to make the normal normal the familiar world feel really strange and unfamiliar mm -hmm. and then the the um because it allows you to look at you know the the strangeness of everyday existence it, from a different lens from a perspective of like you know yeah maybe my 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 normal everyday job this commute to work they're all a little surreal and absurdist when you really like mm -hmm. take a step back um and uh and also i grew up in a family that was like very uh i think we used sarcasm and like joking to hide our true emotions a lot <laughs> And so Catherine is also me uh, maybe e expressing or exercising this discomfort that I have with like someone looking me directly in the eye and being completely sincere, <laughs> which to mm -hmm. me is a horror movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's that's so interesting. I, I love what you said about like you rejecting being clever. Um, and I also feel like with my question before about were you trying to write something that was like so unique and so different? In trying to write like the most mundane, non-clever <laughs> thing, that is the thing that's unique because it's not clever or not trying to be clever. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, with Catherine or Marcel making these like weird, cool things that get recognized and that are successful in Hollywood. And you know, success in Hollywood is like peak status. So you're you get <laughs> praised all the time. And I, I always wanted to ask someone who has become popular in the mainstream what is it like to be praised all the time <laughs> <laughs> um that is so funny i don't i don't think i am praised all the time uh i mean i huh. I, I still see myself a, very much like an outsider of, of not just like hollywood but any any sort of scene that i've been a part of or or anything like that I never totally feel like oh that's like my home and maybe that is the reason I'm like kind of restless and always like making new types of projects um but I don't yeah I don't think that I am praised all the time but I'm flattered maybe that you think I'm praised all the time <laughs> <laughs> well I mean your projects are so successful so I, I imagine also, that it's drowned it's drowned out by like the torrent of self-hatred and uh, denial that uh, uh, is actually um you know running through my head all the time so maybe that's I, why that's probably a pretty common trait of people <laughs> who are praised all the time so you probably don't notice the praise because you reject it <laughs> oh i've definitely talked to people and i have like compared to you know actual like hollywood success story people i have like such a tiny i've had experienced such a tiny amount of public discourse around my work or myself or whatever but um people i know have said to me that it doesn't matter like how how many positive reviews you get you're just going to focus on that one internet comment or whatever that was like this thing sucked and so it it sort of doesn't but maybe you're right maybe there's a maybe there is a benefit to you know not uh drinking the kool-aid about yourself and to sort of i don't think self-hatred is healthy but, but i think there's ignore, a balance ignoring yeah it. yeah there's a balance <laughs> there's a balance to strike somewhere maybe someone has struck it at some point um <laughs> What what I really love about following the the story of the film is uh, the collaboration that happens between you and Jenny and you and Nick Paley, your writing partner mm -hmm. for the film. Because what I am always really drawn to 
in like the fandom around comedy is the friendship and the collaboration that happens that's yeah, sort of what I'm what I crave so what what is it like to just collaborate with your friends how great is it oh it's the best thing in the world truly my favorite part of my job it it really really rules can I curse please it's record you can bleep it out um yeah <laughs> fucking rules <laughs> it's the best part of, it's the best part of my job and um it's I think like the 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 more the further you get into your career in entertainment, whatever it is, I think the more the more grateful you become when you do get those opportunities where you're like, I actually get to choose my co-writer for this or my or my uh, co uh, my co-star for this or whatever. Um, those are always the best projects and so much fun to work on. And um, yeah, I wouldn't have it any other way. It really it really is um, important. And does does compromise come into play in a big way when, especially when you're writing with people that you have these personal relationships with? Um, yeah, totally. I mean, uh, Nick and I collaborate on lots of stuff. We um, sometimes co-direct things. We've written a ton of things together and we've been, we met it, you know, like 15 years ago at, in college. So, uh, so we've got a pretty like fine-tuned sense of, you know, how to compromise, how to like work with one another. We don't, I think we used to get frustrated working together more often than we do now um but yeah you have to uh i mean ultimately in everything i've worked on there's someone who is the primary kind of usually mm -hmm. so compromise you know if you really can't compromise you can't find a compromise. it ultimately defaults to like whoever's going to have to be with the project long term so even if i'm writing on a project of nick's it's like I'm I'm gonna compromise on something I feel strongly about because I'm like, but you're directing it. So like you have to actually be mm. able to give a full-throated support of this idea. And even if I'm quote unquote right that this is like a better, smarter, or whatever thing, uh, it won't matter because because he's the person that's taking it across the finish line. So I think that's important to keep in your mind. Right. Sometimes hierarchy just gets things done. Yeah, yeah, totally. And also, it's a generous thing to be able to say, like, I think that's the right thing, but I'm going to put my ego over here because this is that person's project. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you were a kid, were you, like, dying to be a filmmaker? I didn't until uh, probably, like, 15 or 16. I started getting really, really into film. Before that, I was mostly into drawing and painting and photography and stuff. And then I, like, had my brother was a stand-up comic is a stand-up comic and and uh so i was i sort of grew an interest in like performing um and i acted in some plays in high school and college and then i had one disastrous production of waiting for godot that went awry and i <laughs> developed like tripling stage fright ever since then so then i was like i'm gonna go behind the camera and that's what oh, i've been no. doing ever since <laughs> what what happened it did Godot I mean, like not... show up or something like what? <laughs> yeah, 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 right. It's ruined. Um, <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, no, the actually the if you know the play, you know that like the whole point is that he never comes, and there's this messenger boy who shows up at the end and is like, "Hey, Godot's not going to come, but he'll be here tomorrow." That's the end of the play. The boy, which was who was like a real, a actual child who was like in the production or whatever, was fell asleep backstage. And it was a, and no one knew where, no one could find him. So I and my scene partner were just forced to like improvise in like Samuel Beckett speak oh. for like 20 minutes and nothing mm -hmm. stopped it. And I kept waiting to be like, curtains are going to go down or lights will like something. And it just never did. And so if I, and like the whole point of the play is they never leave the stage. <laughs> Estragon and Vladimir never leave the stage. And then, uh, and then finally, I think I was just like, want to go get a bite? And then my scene partner was like, yeah, 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 cool. That was the end of the, that was the end of that production of Waiting for Gil. Oh my God. So <laughs> I, I have my, my radio show, not my first schmodio, a segment uh -huh. in it is where I get the guests to share a, a sh moment with me at a time that they've like deeply embarrassed themselves in public. Uh -huh. So this, this is a sh moment, but it's, <laughs> but you, you, you tried so hard and I, it's almost like a triumph because they, they didn't pull the curtain, they kept going. So good for you. <laughs> I would argue it's because no one in the audience is familiar enough or cared enough about waiting for Godot to be like, this isn't the lines. <laughs> well, I think it's the triumphant moment. Thank um, you. Where does the word moment come from? What's the schmo part? A schmo moment. So it's, 
a schmo, my definition is like a regular person slash fool. Oh, oh, I see. Like Joe so Schmo. It, okay. Yeah, Joe Schmo, or like you're a schmo, you're a fool. It's it's a yeah. Jewish term. So it's yeah. sort of like um just celebrating embarrassing yourself in public because it's so average. That type of thing. <laughs> <Love it. laughs> yeah. Um all right, I just have um one last question for you. Yeah. Um and that is once again about um relationships and and connections um what in your own life with connections that you make with people how what what do those relationships translate into your work like how do you mm. pull from it and what what's off limits and and what do you like to pull from that's interesting because it's it's I found that I don't know that I'm writing something that's personal until like three years after the thing is out. And then I'm like, oh, it was about my divorce. <laughs> and all my friends are like, are you kidding? Of course it was. <laughs> um, but I think I've always just, I just have a sort of, um, I don't know, you're drawn to what you're drawn to. And I think especially in the indie film world, you have to have a personal connection to that thing, or at least that it has to be self-generating that drive to express a certain thing. Um, that has to come from within because you're not real. I don't know how people do it any other way when they like, you know, just hop onto a, a franchise or when they when they step in for a director that drops out last minute or something like that. I, I have a feeling I would have a much easier time um, being a really wealthy director or something if I if I knew how to do that, but I don't. So it's all just um, it has to have some personal, you know, import. And usually that means it's it's a real relationship that you had or someone you knew. One of my favorite things about um, working with writers and either in writer's room or with like Nick, for example, my collaboration with him and Jenny, is that you're constantly kind of sharing parts of yourself or, or moments from your past um, because you'll say, you know, like, oh, well, how, you know, like, how does it manifest? How do you know when someone's controlling or where does that manifest in their life? And then, you know, we're all kind of sitting around being like, oh, I knew this kid once at blah, blah, blah. Or my mom is like, did this thing, weird thing once. And I love that you sort of like, you get to be um, on a safari with your friends looking at like the crazy sights of in their pasts or whatever. Uh, and, and that has always been, that's always really rewarding, especially when you can, like with Marcel, I think, um, I think we all sort of felt like Marcel's so much about grief and loss and how it's the fertile soil that new growth sprouts from. Uh, I think we all sort of lent, lent, lent the story parts of ourselves and um, that was very sort of rehabilitative in some ways. Because I mean, there's almost, we worked on it for so long and, and everyone was so close to it that I don't think anyone who worked on it hadn't gone through some kind of heartbreak or loss or grieving process during during the making of it. Wow, that that's a great answer. Thank you so much. I think that's also a great like a great part of being a writer is you have you sort of have a reason for your pain a little bit. It's like you have you can do <laughs> that's something a good point. with yeah. your pain. You can do something yeah, that's with true. your pain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you also have to be careful that you're not like um uh prematurely using it for a creative project as a way of sticking your head in the sand like as a way to not process it or to yeah. pretend you have control narrative control over it um but i think yeah you're totally right and i think you know probably all of our famous artists are 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 lending pieces of themselves to their their work yeah i think that's that's just how great art comes to be like Marcel, the show with Susan, which you direct wow. and write. You're <laughs> and so good at that. Those segues are seamless. <laughs> if you want to have a, more of Dean, who has a mug that says his name on it. I do. Good for you. If you want more of Dean, then you can join the Viz Connect talk on October 7th between 1 and 2 p.m. Thank you so much for your time, Dean. It was so lovely meeting you. You're very lovely that the Kool-Aid of yourself has not gone to your head to use your word. <laughs> and Sam, thank you so, so much, Ruby. Your assistant is also so lovely. Thanks, Ruby. Thanks for your time and thanks for all your great questions. It's lovely talking. Thank you so much. Have a great afternoon. Bye. Bye. Well wow. Wow. That was Dean Fleischer Camp. We are back. That was a not a very smooth transition. I'm sorry for those who found that jarring, that transition from the pre-recorded clip to me speaking live now. 
isn't Dean lovely? Doesn't he seem lovely, Zoe? He seems amazing. He was seriously so sweet. His assistant was so lovely. And uh, I really thoroughly enjoyed speaking with him. He was very encouraging. Um, Is there anything from the interview that stuck out to you? Something that stuck out to me was when they were talking about having to improvise that scene. That sounds hard. That, oh my I can't even God. wrap my sounds head Sounds like an, doing a that. nightmare. You're on stage. Yeah. A child has fallen asleep somewhere. <laughs> and you're not, the play cannot move forward. So you have to improvise in stylized language. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> um, no, that I I was trying not to make any sound on the Zoom call um, so that he, so we could hear his story. But I was dying laughing as he was telling it to me because it was so absurd. <laughs> no, I would be too. <laughs> um, all right. So next up, we have an interview with Marie Clemens. I interviewed her about – she has two films uh, showing in VIF, one called Bones of Crows, which is about – um, an indigenous woman th- uh, and her, her life through most of the 20th century. And the other film is called Lay Down Your Heart. And it's about a an artist in uh, Vancouver uh, who happens to have Down syndrome and sort of his prolific artistic ability and the connections that he makes with people. So um, I talked to her about both of these films. Uh, f- first, you'll hear me talk about Bones of Crows, which I've seen. And then you'll hear me talk about uh, lay down your heart, which I haven't seen. Um, I, I say it in the interview too, but it's premiering, I believe, on um, October seventh. Uh, so you can go see that film on the Sunday. Uh, no, on this Friday. Anyways, you'll hear it in the interview. Um, here we go. Here's my interview with Marie Clemens. Welcome, Marie Clemens. Um, Marie is a Vancouver-born Dene Métis writer-director who has two film screening as a part of VIF, Bones of Crows, and Lay Down Your Heart. So, um, Marie, I saw Bones of Crows as a part of a, a press screening uh, about two weeks ago, and I literally have not been able to shut up about it since I saw it. Uh, it was one of the most moving films I've ever seen. And after it ended, I walked out of the VIF center and like couldn't like function. I I walked out across, there's a park across the street and I just had to sit on a bench for 20 minutes and I needed to eat. I needed to go to the bus. I needed to check my phone. And I just like, I couldn't do anything. And then finally, when I did get up, cause I was like, I need to go eat something. It took me like another 40 minutes to be able to even look at my phone and I think that's because I I felt like I needed to like stay in the emotional world of the film because it was so powerful um and I I'm just so excited to be talking to you today because it it just had it had a huge impact on me this film oh thank you that's uh yeah I mean it's um it's it's beautiful to hear that it stayed with you and that you know it was living inside of you processing you know continuing to process through you yeah for exactly and I I found that the the week after I saw the film I kept thinking that I saw the actress who plays lean everywhere like I would I just (laughs) kept like all these women kept reminding me of her so it, it really did stay in in my brain for for a really long time um just to explain for the listener what bones of crows is about Um, Marie Clements lays out a hard history of Indigenous resilience in this urgent, harrowing epic spanning most of the 20th century. The story of a Cree woman named Aileen from childhood through residential school, World War II, and beyond. So for the listener, could you, in your own words, describe what this film is about? Yeah, it centers around the main character, Aileen Spears who's a a Cree matriarch uh, in her family. And it starts in World War II, where she goes off to the war to become a code talker and meets and falls in love with a West Coast guy. And they get married and they have dreams of the future and having children. And then their experiences in residential school starts to come back to them. So it's really looking at um, multi-generations within one family and how that experience uh, just kept dominoing uh, inside that family. Thank you. Um, So this film is obviously filled with really important, but also quite heavy stories. How did you write this film in any way that you want to interpret that question? 
Okay. Well, it originally started out as a, a four-part miniseries, and then it became a five-part miniseries, and then it came a five-part miniseries and a feature film. So uh, there was quite an evolution to to the story. I mean, obviously, the feature you know uh, sticks very close to Aline's narrative, and uh, there was something you know remarkable about um, following one character's life uh, over eighty-six years. Um, so that, that's kind of how it, you know, evolved. Wow. And, and how did you get the film made as a feature? Well, we were, uh, we had originally, uh, went into development with CBC, uh, that it would be this, this mini series. And then we had this opportunity, um, that it was brought up by CBC, to perhaps do uh, apply for a feature, uh, feature funding with Telefilm, and also have it as a miniseries, um, so that it could find two audiences and um, and also be able to financially be made. You know, it made it more realistic that we could we could um, do both. So we did the, did the miniseries get made as well? Yes. Yeah, we're in post right now for the miniseries. Oh. Yeah, and that's with CBC. Yes. Yeah. So is that with the same cast? Is it the same story? Or is it like, did you edit it for miniseries? Or is it a completely different story, completely different characters? Uh, we stay true to Aline's story, but we're able to branch out into more of her sister's story, Perseverance, more of her son and husband's story, uh, and her daughter's story, and ultimately her granddaughter. So it's really kind of, um, it spreads out uh, to be able to look at their point of view. Um, and also how some of the same and different uh, things happened to them. So it was really quite, um, you know, just an honor to be able to kind of branch it out and be able to flesh out those stories. Yeah, definitely. There, in, in the film, there are a lot of characters, as you say. It's mostly focused on Aline, but um, did you pull from any, like, family members or friends' stories and like was were any of the characters in your mind like placeholders for people that you knew or how did you write each character's storyline yeah I mean I think like a lot of indigenous families the story's always been inside of us but I um I definitely had some strong archetypes you know what you know my mother my aunties my uncles and kind of um uh you know their time was at the same time you know the set in the same time that Aline's time is so uh, I could really draw from uh, what I witnessed as a kid and um, conversations and in realities that took place in their lives. And as a writer did you seek out any like editors collaborators in terms of the writing or did you feel like you really wanted to sort of do this on your own? Yeah I mean I I mostly just did it you know it just it it just strangely um yeah I just felt that it I don't know there's this kind of urgency or this feeling that I was allowed to finally tell it in the way that I always wanted to so I think when that happens um you kind of just lean into it and uh you know ride with the story what do you mean by that you were finally allowed to what what allowed you to um I think in this country, it's been very difficult to tell certain stories. Um, and there's been this opening or this kind of possibility uh, in the last three to five years where a lot of our stories, Indigenous stories and, and BIPOC stories are being told or uh, for the first time. So I think there, the synchronicity of that uh, kind of happened for me in the sense where I go, oh, you know, uh, this is going to get funded and it is going to get funded to a, a degree that it needs to be. So those things wouldn't have happened even five years ago. So. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel like Bones of Crows fits into the history of films about residential school and Canadian film? Um, well, I think what's been remarkable is that there's been uh, so many Indigenous filmmakers that took it on as documentaries and kind of really held that up and did extremely, you know, profound films about it. Um, but as far as, um, and there's been other filmmakers that have used the residential school experience, you know, uh, within the storytelling, but not centered on it. Mm -hmm. So 
I, I think Bones of Crows is probably the first um, indigenous created uh, miniseries and features that is uh, that comes from you know this perspective and um, is expressed you know solely uh, for the first time in this way. Wow. And the, the title Bones of Crows um, is a great title. It's, you've got this great visual and, and it sticks out. Did that title like come to you? Were there other working titles? What's the significance of the title for the film for you? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was always Bones of Crows. So that's always funny when that happens to get your title first. Yeah. Um, but it originally came, my mom was uh, passing away and there would be this Catholic priest who would come every day and want to give her last rites. Um, and she didn't want last rites. So she would pretend she was sleeping uh, and we would hear him, you know, his shoes coming down the hallway and she would pretend she's sleeping. And then on the last day um, uh, he left the room and she said, oh, they always, the crows always come for you when you're down. And so I kind of imagined uh, as a young girl being in these, you know, hallways of those dorms that the sound of those shoes and these, you know, black, black cloaks and what they wear would have reminded her of, of crows. So, yeah, right. so kind of started there. Yeah. Wow, that's, that's really beautiful. And wow. <laughs> um, there's, there's one um, scene in the film that I would like to ask you about. Uh, the scene was uh, very emotional. I sobbed through the whole film, um, but uh, so I'll just I'll just ask my question. Okay, um, so it, it it was one of the most visceral scenes for me, but I also felt like it was really great storytelling because it was a great example of like showing not telling, as they say in writer one hundred one classes. Um, so it's the scene where Adam, Eileen's husband, who's fighting in the Second World War, is in, I think, the Netherlands, um, and he's liberating Holocaust survivors from a concentration camp, and, um, you know, in seeing the inhumane conditions that these people are kept in and their malnourished bodies, he starts to have um, what I interpreted as a PTSD-induced panic attack, um, and he sees flashes of a child in a concentration camp that's right in front of him and then flashes of uh, a child in residential school maybe it's him maybe it's someone that he's seen in his residential school um, and we flash back and forth between the boy that's right in front of him and the boy in residential school in in his memory and then he collapses to the ground and him and the boy in the concentration camp um, embrace uh, I'm, I'm a Jewish person, so um, for many, many people in my family died in the Holocaust, so this scene was sort of extra emotional for me. Um, and like I said, in lots of ways, I thought it was a, a really brilliant scene, um, because there are so many people who don't acknowledge that residential schools and what happened to Indigenous people in this country was a genocide. So I felt like this scene so beautifully captured the human suffering of both side by side. Um, indigenous history and, and residential schools have been written out of Canadian mainstream history for so long. So, uh, you know, and many people watching this film uh, may be more likely to have an understanding of the suffering that took place during the Holocaust. So when I watched this scene, I felt like it gave audiences a touchstone to capture the gravity of the indigenous experience in Canada, is that, that, that's how I interpreted the scene, that's how it resonated with me. How did you intend for that scene to resonate? Yeah, I think what you're saying is exactly what I'd hoped for, you know, that, that people would get the connection on an emotional level, um, that, that these genocides that occurred in our histories uh, were real, and that um, they impacted, um, you know, thousands and, you know, and obviously millions in, in your case. But I, I think it's, yeah, I was just really looking at um, that experience because I do, I do think we don't think as, you know, residential schools as a genocide, but clearly 
when we're still, uh, you know, uh, recovering uh, children's bodies out of the ground uh, in this country. Uh, it is a genocide, you know, it's clearly uh, was aimed at one thing. So, um, yeah, thank you for, for understanding that and, and connecting those two in, in, in a big way. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, no, it, it, was, it was really powerful. Um, is, that, is that something that um, can, the emotional connection that you're, that you're making um, about genocide, is that something that was, um, that you were like, I need to put this in or, or why, why put this scene in? Um, I think there were so many Indigenous uh, soldiers that served in World War II. And um, my feeling is they must have gotten over there and looked at some of the conditions uh, and the, just the shock of it, you know, I think that just the shock of what humanity can do to what we can do to each other. They must have been impacted by that in a, in a major way. Um, and because starvation and because, um, you know, uh, measures of church and state uh, were present, uh, you know, in the Holocaust reality, and, and obviously we're present in the indigenous reality, it seemed like uh, we shared something, you know, that other peoples might not uh, totally connect to. But I do think, you know, the, what, what happened um, just kind of changed the face of uh, who we are, you know, what we understand humans, you know, our capacity to do, obviously, you know, such terrible things uh, and our capacity to try to do brilliant things. So I just really wanted to look at that because I wanted uh, that character to face something that, that he understood, but totally that that was totally different, but that he could understand it in a human way, you know? Yeah, no, and I think that it was, it 100% came across in, in a really beautiful um, way. So what, uh, in, in what ways are you proud of this film? I, well, I think it's, you know, it really has to do with being able to execute vision, uh, to work with people that, that can make that happen with the other producers and creative leads. Because uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't an easy uh, project by any means. So I, I think just the sheer <laughs> uh, tenacity that it took by everyone uh, to fight for, you know, every frame is, is really, there's a, there's a great feeling that happens on the other side of that. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know, you know, we all brought, you know, all the, there were so many indigenous uh, people, performers and um, uh, cross people and crew that came to Bones of Crows. And I think there's something uniting about telling a story that we haven't seen on film and bringing our craft to it, you know? So there was a shared kind of uh, challenge, but a shared vision of it that we were not going to uh, not do our very best, so. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And uh, as you said, you know, there were, it was maybe challenging or, or heavy um, to film uh, a, a story like this, but what was joyful about making this project? I think the freedom to be able to do it, you know, the freedom and the, um, and the kind of, uh, there's an energy that you get when you're, you know, you're, you're going to go in to shoot is, is that you're, you know, it's, it's exciting and, and painful and weird, but it's, <laughs> there's a kind of velocity, you know, you get kind of this kind of um, high from, from shooting because you've been waiting, you know, you've been writing it for uh, years, months, um, weeks, and so you actually get to see it. And I think there's something profound about that, that turn when that happens, when you're actually not seeing it in your mind anymore, you're actually seeing it right in front of you. Yeah, wow. Um... Thank you so much. Uh, I'm, we're going to move on to Lay Down Your Heart now because you actually have two films in VIF, but thank you so much for talking about Bones of Crows with me because, like I said, I have not been able to shut up about it to every single person in my life since I've seen it, so um, I'm really glad I got to talk to you about it. Um, all right, now down to Lay Down Your Heart, which is a documentary that you have uh, as a part of VIF. Lay Down Your Heart is a touching tribute to Niall McNeil, a multi-talented artist in theater who happens to be a person living with Down syndrome, a heartwarming celebration of a local artist who has succeeded on his own terms. So the film has not premiered at VIF yet. It premieres on October 6th at International Village. Um, 
but I watched the trailer and um, I, I am really looking forward to, to watching the film. Can you explain a little bit in your own words, once again, um, what this film is about? Yeah, it really centers around Niall McNeil, who uh, is a renowned playwright and uh, artist and writer and composer and filmmaker. He has a lot of slashes to his name. And it really looks at how uh, a life of creation, um, you know, he's a very prolific creator, uh, how his imagination works and how it also has been able to uh, bring in family and how he, how creation has also led him to have another family that he's adopted or, or a chosen family. And um, how did you get involved in this project? Uh, well, I have been, uh, now and I go back uh, a while and um, I was, I don't know, we were just really interested. I was interested to seeing what some of how, you know, how his relationships came to be, what he thought about his art um, and in his own words. So it was really just looking, you know, out of curiosity, um, what, what I didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, and uh, so we just kind of went with that. And I, yeah, it was really kind of a very cool uh, piece for sure. Yeah, so when you when you talk about uh, the, the the chosen family and uh, and his creative ability, you're a member in the chosen family. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, I'm his uh, ex-wife uh, in our in our you know in our family, and we have uh, two sons. And uh, so part of it too, I was able to ask him questions about our relationship because, of course, when I met him, um, I was just told I was his ex-wife. <laughs> So I didn't have the intel of what, you know, all the dirty secrets and all the, you know, crazy things that happened in our relationship. So it was a lot of fun to, to find out with everybody at the same time with everybody else. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to, to also find out, to watch the film and to, to find out why you're his ex-wife. Um, so when I was watching the trailer, um, it seemed to me like Niall had a rare ability to make these like deep and impactful connections with others. Cause there were so many other people in the film that wanted to be a part of this film that, that you know, that are his sons or his ex-wife or, or members of his family. So what do you think it is about Niall that, uh, that can make these deep and impactful relationships with other people? Um, I think just on a human level, I think he can see people, you know? I think he has a, a really a gift to be able to uh, witness someone and understand them. So I think some of it, it's not so much that, like some of it, he's giving us what he thinks we need, you know? So like one of our sons um, had lost his father and I said to him, well, I'll be your father now. You know, because you, I think he felt that Stephen needed, you know, uh, that kind of love and, and, you know, a, a person that was going to care for him when his father had passed. So suddenly, you know, Nye was Stephen's father. Uh, yeah, Nye was Stephen's father. And suddenly um, that was my son, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's kind of very instinctual that way, I think, for Nye. And, you know, he, it's not just that he says it, he actually, you know, like I'll get texts um, from him and, you know, happy birthdays and Facebook messages. And, and so does the rest of the family. And a lot of times just saying, you know, how, how's your day? How you doing, sweetheart? You know, and so you go, oh God, somebody's, you know, somebody cares, somebody's, you know, so it's pretty funny. It's, 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 but it's also kind of profound and, and, uh, and it's real in certain ways, you know? Yeah. How did you meet him? Uh, we both work with his aunt, uh, who is Paula Dankert, and she's a dramaturg. And so Paula has worked on uh, a lot of my plays, and we've collaborated together a lot. Uh, and Nye works with her, uh, has worked with her on his plays. Um, so we met through Paula, and then, you know, Nye and I would just get together, seeing each other's work, uh, going to each other's plays, and things and you know doing dinners and things like that and just talking about art and what projects we we're going to do and and so uh very much an artistic relationship you know of of two people that uh were doing different things in the world and sitting around a table talking about it that sounds like the best 
Yeah, it is the best. It is the best. <laughs> yeah. um, and when you, in the documentary, it's mostly, it's it's really beautiful and, and fun. It's mostly on a white backdrop. You're filming Nile, and then there's sort of like color and paint uh, being like spewed across the screen. I'm not describing this properly, but but you you filmed it mostly um, on a white background. So, you know, you, not a lot of shooting locations, but what did you find challenging about making this film? Well, we got, uh, we had originally set to go across the country and interview uh, Nye's blood family, but also his theatrical family um, in different cities, but we ran straight into COVID. Uh, so we were able to shoot some interviews in Vancouver, but all the rest of the cities we weren't able to travel. Mm -hmm. So uh, we did everything on green screen. Uh, so we shot Nye in the interviews in the studio here. And then we put uh, other subjects in, 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 uh, in interviews in other studios across the country. And then we put that room to, you know, that room became one room. So uh, technically it was, uh, it was very challenging and very cool. Uh, and I thought, and I did a great job because it's, you know, it's often not easy talking to a screen when you, you know, you, you're pretending you're talking to, you know, five people on a couch, but really it's only you. Um, so I think it was, you know, that was, that was very, um, it was just different, you know, something different. And, uh, but I thought in, in it, it worked. And also uh, Nye was very interested in expressing himself through his art because he's became, you know, a very prolific uh, visual artist. And I thought it was a beautiful way to see the colors in him, you know, the colors in his personalities and his worlds and how he paints us in them. Yeah. That's, that's lovely. Um, so in both of your films uh, that are at VIF, Bones of Crows and Lay Down Your Heart, both you sort of, they're personal to you because you're the filmmaker, but they're also personal to you because of the, uh, relationships that you have with the subjects of the film. So how does your relationship to the subjects of your film make your job as a director harder or easier? Um, I think there's something about um, being rooted uh, in something. I mean, there's, it's a very, uh, to have a touchstone um, of why you're doing it uh, is important, not because, you know, early days you understand why you're doing it, but it, you know, things get hard. So I think it's really helpful to have something that connects you to it, uh, a personal connection and an absolute connection mm -hmm. that you can go to and go, this is what I'm responsible for. This is who I'm responsible for. And, um, and it, it does, it, I think it changes, you know, the execution of, of how you envision it, you know? Yeah, definitely. Um, what is next for you? I mean, you have these two huge films premiering right now. What, do, are you going to take a break? Are you going to just keep going? What do you, what's next for you? Well, we try to keep going, but um, a break is sounding really good about now, but <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we're still in post for the TV series, so we'll be working on that for a few months. Um, and then of course I'm, you know, have other projects that I'm writing. So I'm hoping to get those up and in, in the new year. What is the TV project called and, and where, sh where and when should we look out for it? Uh, the TV project is called Bones of Crows 2, so it won't be too hard. Wait, Bones and of Crows 2 or Bones of Crows as well? As well. Okay. <laughs> as well. And uh, wouldn't that be funny? Bones of Crows 2. Yeah, it was like, I don't know if the audience is going to understand. Yeah. I got to pitch that next, you know. Got to be a Bones of Crows 2. Come on. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Bones of Crows, and we, uh, that should be launched uh, next September, 2023. Wow. wow. Um, all right. Well, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time this morning, Marie. I am really honored to have been able to speak with you. Um, you can see Lay Down Your Heart as a part of the Vancouver International Film Festival on October 6th and October 9th at International Village. And as I said, I have told so many people about this film, but um, by the time this interview airs, the, the last showing for VIF will have finished. So where can people watch this film going forward? 
Uh, we're going to be uh, doing a theatrical release in the spring, so it will be at further festivals, but um, we'll definitely be launching across the country then. Okay, so like on video on demand or on a streaming platform or? Uh, mostly all theaters across the country, and then uh, it will broadcast. I'm not sure what the date is, but following that, so um, stay tuned, I guess, right? All right, I'll, I'll make sure to follow <laughs> it. <laughs> all right, thank uh, you right. so much, Marie. Good luck with your with Bones of Crows, the television <laughs> series, and um, everything else you're working on. I'll definitely be looking out for all the other things you make. Uh, thanks, Ruby. Lovely to meet you. <laughs> nice to meet you, too. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. All right. We're back. That was me, Ruby Raven's interview with the amazing Marie Clements, who is a filmmaker, director, writer, producer, um, extraordinaire. Uh, kind of a heavy interview, but um, really, really interesting to talk to her. She is just a really cool person and had a lot of really interesting things to say. So I was really happy t to meet her. What did, what did you think? I thought it was absolutely incredible. I have not seen the film yet, but even just her descriptions about it and her just talking about it made me really feel something. So I'm excited for this. Um, she said she was going to do a theatrical release, was it? Yes, the theatrical release, which okay. is coming. Yeah, well, I'm excited for that. I will definitely be... I will definitely be seeing it. Yeah. I know. I As I said in the interview, I literally have told every single person in my life yeah. about this film, so I will be sending everyone out to see it as soon as it's in theaters and as, as soon as that's figured out. But uh, this, come, this brings us to the end of this week's Arts Report. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, once again, if you want to see Lay Down Your Heart, Marie Clement's uh, documentary, it's playing on October 6th at International Village and Sunday, October 9th, also at International Village. Uh, thank you so much for tuning into the Arts Report on CITR 101.9 FM. My name is Ruby Raven. This is Zoe, Zoe. McClymont. <laughs> uh, Zoe's first time on air. You did a fantastic job. Thank you. And uh, we'll see everyone next week. Um, all right. Okay. Bye. Listening to CITR 101.9, broadcasting from UBC's Point Grey campus, located on the traditional, unceded, Coast Salish territory of the Hunkamenim speaking Musqueam people.